BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This is our weekend episode and we have a visitor for the weekend episode, Roger Simons. He is formerly the CEO of Pajamas Media and a member of the directors of the Writers Guild of America. He is also a, the president of the West Coast branch of Penn, which is the Poets, Playwrights, Editors, Essayist, Novelist organization. He has contributed to many newspapers and journal journals, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Commentary, Real Clear Politics, and City Journal. Roger's most recent novels are The Goat, which he published in 2019, and it was described as his best novel by The New Criterion, which is one of our favorite magazines, and I always recommend The New Criterion, so they must be right about that novel. And also his most recent novel, American Refugees, that is just published in 2024. He is finally the editor-at-large of the Epic Times currently and another favorite among this um, podcast. So we always recommend going to the Epic Times, but we're so happy to welcome Roger Simon. Stay with us and we'll be right back after these messages. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. Welcome back. So, Victor, I'm going to go ahead and turn this over to you so you can um, probably do a much better introduction of Roger since you and um, well, Roger I mean, we, have been friends for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I've known Roger for 20 years. He was the one that recruited me to, to, um, to write for Pajamas Media, where I think I, Roger, I did it for 12, 13 years at least with you under your directorship. And today is the pub date of Roger's newest book, uh, 
and it's published by Encounter under the editorship of Roger Kimball, and we on the Bradley Board Foundation um, serve as the board of directors of Encounter. So I've followed this great book through its manuscript to publication journey, and it's called American Refugees, The Untold Story of the Mass Migration from Blue to Red States. So welcome, Roger. And I, I, I'll just start off with a question. Everybody's talking about this flight from blue to red, but what is untold about it? What, what, what do you mean by untold story? What, what's the missing thing that we don't fully appreciate? Oh, that's the key question of the book. And there are, there are several untold stories. I'll, I'll start with one. One is that as a connoisseur of, um, of the conservative internet that you would know, uh, Glenn Reynolds, the Instapundit, yeah. uh, some years ago when he, he who lives in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, noted that this migration was coming. He said that uh, they should set up a welcome wagon to not bring your California values with you. And uh, I discovered and Glenn acknowledged that he was wrong. And what it, what it is, is it turns out that by and large, and of course this is a generalization as all such things are, uh, that most of the people coming from California and New York and Chicago, et cetera, uh, to places like Tennessee were motivated by ideological reasons, even more than financial reasons, and turned out to be, in many, many cases, much more constitutionalist than the people living here. Than they're living so, here. Because so you, it, is your argument that we in California that leave, we not only don't disrupt the red state status of our new homes if we were to move, but we make them redder? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Uh, and also, I, in fact, I refer to those people often, some of them, not, not all, but many, as the cavalry come to save the red states from themselves. Wow. You, is, that, is, is that true of every, I mean, there are people that leave, say, just to take one example, to Colorado. Is that a, is that a separate case because it's a purple state? Are the people I, leaving there, yes, are, are they I different? Think, than, yeah, I'm, yes. I am dealing prim primarily in this book with Tennessee, Georgia, uh, Florida, and Texas. Is now, Nevada and Arizona qualify or Wyoming, Montana? Well, they, 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 they do qualify, but I, I do talk about Arizona a little bit. Uh -huh. But the, I, you know, I'm not a researcher. I'm an experiential writer. I'm a uh -huh. novelist, screenwriter, and I write, I write unabashedly from that point of view. I want what? to make it a good read. I want to make it, you know, something that takes people on an emotional rather than entirely an intellectual yes. experience. Well, on that, in, that in that case, I'm going to ask you directly, do you have any regrets emotionally? Uh, I mean, we all have regrets about everything, but by and large, when you move to Tennessee, do you look back on it as a wise move that you're happy with? Much greater advantages than the the missing of the climate or the, I don't know, the natural beauty of California? I do not have enough regrets to really regret it. In other words, yeah, some days I've missed some things, 
but uh, by and large, and I'll tell you the reason that uh, the in-depth reason that was something very extraordinarily happened to me on this move. It took a while to really sink in, but it did. And that is when I first arrived, I, I, I looked around and I said, what's going on with all these steeples? There are steeples on every corner, meaning churches, of course. And, you know, if you live in L.A. most of your life, as I did, yes, there are big churches and synagogues in Los Angeles. But the, the major buildings of the city, the things that you think of are, are you know, the beach, the mountains, the, the, the movie studios, in my case, very prominently, but they for a lot of people. Uh, and, and all secular things, even the Getty Museum is a secular Whereas here, it was different, and it's hard to get into me, and to the extent that I personally became much more religious. Really? Fact, yes. I was talking to to, uh, to Dennis Prager about this, and here's an interesting thing he said. He brought out, he brought out a, an old quotation from Germany, which said that, the, that as the Christians become more religious, the Jews become more religious. Not vice versa. Yeah, I see. Uh, and not, and not oppositionally, he was. He, he was talking about devotionally, uh, and it, it's uh, it happened to me, and it changed my writing in a certain sense. But it, and the way it changed it is that when I first journeyed from Yale Drama School to Hollywood, it was you know primarily to become rich and famous, not. Just that I love I love books and movies and want to entertain people clearly, and I had lots of left wing political ideas, but now I'm right to save the country. And when you, I get up in the morning, that's all I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about how clever I am or you know who's going to say I'm great and all the rest of that stuff. But I have a question so, for you in the, in, the, in the in the depths of writers. Yeah. So. What I'm worried about, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that as we have this huge migration and the many millions, and I think we've lost 280,000 in the last 18 months alone in California. So the places where they're leaving become bluer and the places that they're going, with maybe an exception or two, become redder. So the country is more distinct, more binary. But what does that do to let's say there's 40 million people in California and there's 15 million conservatives and we lost all of you guys that traditionally had voted let's say the majority if you're right that they they make red states more conservatives because they're mostly themselves conservative refugees so they gave us Reagan they gave us George Dukmation they gave us Pete Wilson they even gave us Arnold Schwarzenegger and now that's we haven't had a state wide Republican office holder, I think not since Schwarzenegger, not one, not the attorney general, not this lieutenant gen, um, governor, nothing. We have a supermajority of left wingers, not Democrats, but hard left in the legislature, both the assembly and the Senate. We only have 11, I think, of 53 seats of Republicans. So what do we do with is the is the theory that you want to save the country? So you're trying to save what can be saved, but then the blue states will just get so bad that 
will come to our senses? Is that the idea? And we'll have to do something? Well, you know, uh, I think about that particular question quite a bit because uh, I even refer to it. I talk about it in the book, too, because, you know, there's a level of guilt implied in all this. (laughs) I bugged out on you. (laughs) On the other hand, I I think what you also said in there that um, I think that California, particularly in New York, to a great degree as well, because I'm basically a New Yorker and go there all the time for work. You know, they have to hit bottom in order to get back up. As a historian, you know the argument very well. But, uh, I, I, you know, I think that they were so far gone and continue to be so far gone that the only that the solution is absolute climate. <laughs> uh, whereas we can preserve things uh, in these other states and then maybe join together. I don't know. I mean, looking at the taking the long view of history and this is complicated because, you know, as Yogi Berra told us, and I just watched that terrific documentary about it, uh, you know, d- predictions are difficult, particularly about the future. And I, part of the reason I left and all these people are leaving is to live better lives with our families. Have your family moved to Tennessee? My wife and daughter were moving. Yeah, with me. yeah I'm not. Have you, let me ask you I something. I have two families because I have, I have a, from a previous marriage, I have a family with two sons that are in their 50s. And these um, men, now men, are, of course, very much aligned with the nation of woke. Because huh. there was a lefty when, when they were little kids. My daughter, who is 25, their father was much more conservative, and she is too. I mean, that's one of the interesting problems that we're all facing because families are riven in our culture. I don't know. I'm sure most of your listeners know that many experience it. And um, I think part of the impetus to move, you see new communities. One of, one of the, there are whole areas uh, just south of Nashville, suburbs, really, Franklin, Tennessee, and so forth, that are filled with with um, you know, what, what what might be called Californios of a new type, almost all of whom are are right wing to one degree or another, and and are forming a a cadre that is saving Tennessee in a lot of ways. When you walk down Nashville, or you go to the store, or you deal with a government, whatever your social intercourse, you meet many people. Say in a week that you say. Wow, you left California. Does that happen a lot? Is there a lot of them in Nashville that to the point where you bump into them? Oh, it depends on where you are. As I say, I'm just referring to Franklin, which is just south of Nashville and is in Williamson County, and which is probably sort of like uh, Norman Rockwell meets sushi bars. It's like yeah. uh, it's the richest Republican county in the country, some say. Uh, there you're just oh, everywhere. In Nashville Center, no, but there are millions of tourists, so it's very hard to tell with Nashville because uh, the country music scene draws so many people that that, uh, they're from all over the world and uh, going into the hockey talk. So it's it's a very different experience. But what speaking of which, we didn't realize when we moved here the the extent of the city of Nashville itself was deep blue. We had assumed that it was. You know, purple in some yeah. way. The actual city 
because of Vanderbilt, which is no different, much not much different from Harvard, and uh, in its political views, uh, um, uh, mixed with you know the downtrodden who have been brainwashed. It's it's the, the you go to the Metro Council, which is their city council, and you think you're in a woke version of the Politburo. So it's sort of like is Nashville downtown more like Austin than say Dallas? Yes. Wow. The- yes, but just outside of Nashville, it's more red than Texas. So it's it's odd. But the, one of the reasons I wrote the book is trying to to break down that sociology by traveling around here. Georgia has the most corrupt government, and it's that's a very difficult place to move to, I think. The, the, one of the hidden uses of my book is as a consumer guide for those planning on moving. One thing, is, uh, one thing I noticed in that, though, because I interviewed a lot of people about it, old friends I would call in New York and L.A. and other places, and uh, they would ask me, well, what's good? What if Franklin has a good school system. What's this? Blah, 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 blah. All these kind of questions you ask in preparation to move. And you realize that there's a certain personality that moves and a certain personality that doesn't. And it it's it, it harkens back to the old days of who are the Italians that came here and who are the Italians that stayed in Italy. And I'm glad some stayed in Italy because I like to visit Italy. Wow, I know. I, that, that's I have that feeling as someone who's very dissatisfied with what California has become. And then I remember stories from my Swedish grandfather about all the hardworking sl- Swedes that farmed rocks and were desperate to have an outlet for their talents or their energy went to America and the ones that were complacent stayed. And I've always wondered if that's, that applies to us in California, but. Uh, well, I named the book American refugees deliberately. And I, it's to harken back to that, to those mentalities. Now I recognize like, for example, you who I've known, as you said, for maybe two decades, uh, and I've been to your, your, your farm, uh, outside Fresno there, it's, I understand why you're a man of the land. Yeah, and, I can't move. Yeah, you can't move, and nor should you. No, no I'm not saying, oh, come on, Victor, sell the farm and move. You, no, it's silly. But, you know, but, it's, it's 13%. I guess why you moved is for a variety of reasons, but one of them was 13 top rate, 13.3, fifth highest sales tax, highest gasoline taxes, some of the highest assessed evaluations on property tax, even though the rate is not the highest. And then what do we get? We get number 43rd or something in school test scores. We have the highest property crime rate per capita in the nation in San Francisco. We don't get a lot. And we have one third of all of the welfare recipients are in California. It should be one-sixth by our, our population. Then we have almost half the homeless. We have half those who came illegally. We haven't assimilated, you know, 27% of the population wasn't born. And it's just, I, I guess what I'm saying is when every time I turn around and I go to deal with a power company or the gas company or I go to a store or a government agency, there, there's chaos. And I'm starting to, to to explain that chaos by the people who used to run things have left. And I, I realize now that 
maybe over the last 40 years, it could be as high from some of the things I've read from eight to nine million people. And they were the people who made PG&E work or Southern California Edison work or the state college system work. And they haven't people of that experience and talent haven't been replaced or groomed. And I'm worried that and I think that's part of your book, as I remember, is that and one of your arguments that you've made is that this doom loop. We won't change until we hit bottom, right, because. And then people, people are people, and they'll just say it doesn't work. The paradigm doesn't work. We've got to try something new. Is that is that's kind of what you're saying, isn't it? Absolutely, what I'm saying. But you know the, but you know you make me reflect on you know there are two approaches to it. There's the approach of staying as you are, but you but in your case is special because of your farm. But uh, in my case, it was like. Um, uh, do, do I want to have a decent life with my family now or wait for California to repair itself? Well, I'm, frankly, I'm too old. I, I know it would never happen within my, even though I'm in good shape for my age, I knew, I knew it would never happen well. Also, I, I know that the argument that it's got to bottom in order to come back it, it, it was, it's an extraordinary thing to think now because I can't imagine 30, 40 years ago thinking that about it. California. California, I moved to California at the time when every of the Beach Boys and everybody wants to be in California. It was like, I mean, history does move rather fast. I, to me, California was the dream. It was. It, it seemed to me that I... I as I get older, everybody older nostalgia is nostalgia for the past. But when I look back at what life was like when I was a little boy in the late fifties or early sixties, it was it was paradise. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're with Roger L. Simon. There's a lot of Roger Simons, but this is the important Roger L. Simon, and he's written a new book that comes out today, January 9th, from Encounter Books: American Refugees: The Untold Story of the mass exodus from blue states to red states. And we'll be right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we're back now with uh, Roger and American Refugees, the author of American Refugees. I have another question for you, Roger. As, as people self-select, are you worried that we're adding a geographical force multiplier to political differences in a way that maybe we did in the 1840s and 50s south or north of the Mason-Dixon line? I mean, if we keep self-selecting, are we going to get states 
and neighboring, because they tend to be adjacent to each other in many cases, Oregon, Washington, um, et cetera, and then maybe Georgia or Mississippi, Florida, Tennessee. I don't know what Kentucky's a little different. But my point is, are we going to get so self-selected that we're going to be incompatible? You, you, when you no, go to a blue state, you, you feel that you're in, you're in outer space these days? A little bit, but here's the thing. Uh, I, that's something that I dealt with in the book a lot in discussions with a guy I, I called Rocky Top. Oh, he calls himself Rocky Top in the book. He's actually one of the most interesting political insiders I ever met who I can't identify him exactly because that's the, the code, but he was uh, uh, the advisor to presidents and also the advisor to Tennessee governors and you know, there's been a political pro forever, but he is very much, I would say, in the camp that the two of us are, uh, but a, a remarkably acerbic fellow. And we, so we would have lunches while I was writing the book and I would describe it to him, uh, you know, and always discussing what the future of America is, whether it will, whether it was indeed too big a country. I mean, maybe it is too big a country. Maybe there should be two countries. I mean, it's there's an argument for that. Uh, I mean, the, the common defense, of course, is a big problem with China sitting out there, et cetera. But, you know, it's not a simple thing to... Uh, I, I know it. I, I, I worry about it, too, because historically, if I go back and read some of the authors who wrote commentaries on the constitutional process... One of the things, and then even in the 19th century, people like William Tecumseh Sherman, in reference to the Civil War, he was. They were always saying what made America work was we had the same continental mass as Europe in area, but we didn't have all these little nations. We had states, and on the federal system, their squabbling was contained or absorbed by the Union, but they didn't have that in Europe. So therefore, they had all these seven years war, 30 years war, Napoleonic wars. And we were exempt from that. And that was a good thing that we had found a system that would allow for state individuality, but not to the point of succession, I suppose, or interwarring. But the other thing I'm, I'm worried about is that historically, when, when large nations break up, the former Yugoslavia or the Soviet Union, you look at Ukraine, it's not amicable. And so it they tend to be not just neutral, but they become more hostile than they would with other nations. So it seems to me that I was just in Florida not too long ago. And by the way, as soon as I got to Florida and I talked to people and I saw the freeways compared to 101 or the 99 and, and I went and Everything seemed to work. It was kind of like there was no stress compared to what southern San Joaquin Valley can be like. And but the thing that got me about it was or not got me, but worried me a little bit was it was just antithetical to California. And then when I watched the DeSantis Newsom debate, it was even more so. And I mean, Newsom couldn't even defend what he wanted to to his dream. He, he admitted I he had to kind of falsified a record because he couldn't defend what he'd created or help create. But I guess what I'm saying is we're, we're rapidly at warp speed creating, don't you think, two cultures almost 
that no, that's no question. That's what we're living in, and the question is how it resolves itself. Uh, you know, I wish I knew. I don't know, but uh, but you know, that's why I wrote the book maybe to explore it. You try when you, when you write a book. I don't know whether this is true for you, but uh, I'm trying to teach myself while writing the book. That even applies to fiction because you sort of teach yourself the story. But it, it's it, it, we are at a, I, I've never been in a time. I remember I'm old enough to remember the Vietnam period very well. And I participated yeah. in, the, in the early civil rights movement. I was a civil rights worker in 1966 in South Carolina. And it was it was a very optimistic thing, really, because we knew we were on the right side. If we if we had dreamed even then. I mean, I couldn't conceive of what became of of the Al Sharptons of the world and and the Black Lives Matter stuff then. I mean, we were trying to have segregate. We were, trying, we were looking for integration. I mean, it was. I, I know it. I know. Every, everything took what went wrong. Everything took a wrong turn in this country. There was there was a time of optimism. Even the Vietnam War. You know, I I was a Vietnam War protester. I look back at it. Was I right? I don't even know. But but I I never took seriously at that time the country was falling apart. No, I didn't either. And I think a lot of it is. Well, I mean, when you mentioned Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, yeah, they were race mongers. But compared to Nicole Hannah Jones, who has written things like the white race is criminal and is responsible for all the evils of the world, or Ta-Nehisi Coates, who said that he had no empathy for the, the first responders or on 9-11, or you, you, you look at Kendi, what he said, he's written in the past when he was a student that this, this horrible, almost eliminationist rhetoric, and then when you see October 7th and that fusion with DEI, we're well beyond... I think we're well beyond the Black Panthers and that radical fringe or Jesse Jackson's and all that stuff. Oh, I mean, he talked about Although the seeds of it were in that a little bit. I mean, I can remember when I was in the civil rights movement, I went down to Atlanta to the SNCC headquarters. And uh, I, I remember because I, I was teaching then at a school for young black kids in, uh, in South Carolina, Sumter. And. I remember they weren't that happy to see me back then. <laughs> it was a very odd moment. And and I asked this very handsome guy who was going, a black guy who was going off to uh, to Leaflet, a neighborhood in Atlanta, because he was running for the assembly, whether I could join him. And he said, uh, no, no, thank you. And his name, it turns out, was Julian Bond. Yeah. And so I, I had a couple of other because uh, I, I did read the book because I, I get every book, but I wanted to especially see how it turned out really well from Encounter. And a couple of other things I think were, were important. When is there when you uh, and I think this when you go to Florida or you go to Arizona or you go to any of Georgia and is there a sense that that these states are conglomerating into sort of a red state antithesis. You feel more at home in Florida than you do in Oregon or Washington or California. You you see what I mean? Are we creating almost not just refugees from California that are going to a particular state, 
but we're kind of creating an alternate reality, which I think is the majority of the country, even though it doesn't control any of the institutions like the media or academia or corporate boardroom or entertainment. But you get the sense that there's something being born with these red states and the, the immigration that's almost. Yeah, you did. Yeah, what you is did. it? What is it? It's an alternate America or is it the real America? Well, it's the real America, I hope. But, you know, you get it particularly with the people. Uh, you don't get it so much with the leaders. So it's, a, you know, occasionally. But 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 mostly you get it among the people. And the, there's a divide in this country all over between the people and the leadership, I think. Um, and, you know, your heart goes to the people, of course, because it's we the people. But, but. But, uh, you know, when I crossing the border between Tennessee and I've done gone down to Alabama quite a bit, too. And, you know, the, the people are much the same. It's they <laughs> they all have different leaders. And, and you know, that's that just goes back to Lord Acton, I guess. It's not it's not big a surprise. But the question is whether these people who are forming this country of their own, that's the greatest hope. I think it's the greatest hope. I think it goes to the eastern part of California, too. I mean, I, I California is so, it's like a country, I don't have to tell you. And if you go to, to the eastern side of it, it feels very different from the coastal. It does. It's California geographically is 75% conservative and demographically it's 75% left wing. Yeah. So it's, it's just... It's disturbing. I, I guess uh, I, I, everybody we're talking about uh, Roger Simon's new book on this mass exodus of refugees from blue states in general, in particular, his own experience, kind of a memoir approach, what he felt leaving California and then going to the red state of Tennessee. And it's a very optimistic message. I want to uh, uh, emphasize that, that Californians are not to be feared that they reinvigorate already conservative states in a positive way. And then in a very different way, their absence from some of these blue states accentuates uh, something that's not sustainable. And that will be self-corrective, although it'll go through a kind of a, a dangerous process of rebirth or rejuvenation. But um, another question I had, and it came up when I first looked at the manuscript as well. When when you see uh, your book is about leaving and, and what you found in Tennessee and what, but also what you left behind, what do you think, what was it? What At what critical point do you think that we went from in California, Pat Brown, Jerry's dad as governor, kind of a liberal, but still Hubert Humphrey, Democrat, that was reasonable. My parents were, I think you'd call them Harry Truman or Hubert Humphrey, maybe Pat Brown, Democrats, until this transitional Jerry Brown. And then you get into the DEI woke progressive insanity. At what critical point was it 1970, 1980 that we could have saved the state? What happened? Was it just... People leaving and then tech money coming in, nine trillion dollars of market capitalization alone in Silicon Valley that made people exempt from worrying about what they'd done to others. Or was it the 
15 million people who came into California illegally from across the border. Well, was it all of them or what was the point where we we couldn't we (laughs) couldn't be saved? The tipping point. You know, I have to I I knew Jerry Brown for very strange reasons, one of which is we had the same girlfriend, but not at the same time and not Linda Ronstadt. But but uh, I knew him a little bit and he was a very bright man, but he was also. Um, you know, pray to kind of the self-deceptive hippie culture ideas that I think probably account for the decline. And to give it an exact year is tough. But uh, I think that, that the, you know, permissiveness in society is fine, but too much permissiveness goes crazy. And I, I think that, you know, we're, California is in a kind of a Jacobin preach period now uh not, nobody's in the guillotine but it's it, uh, all these different forces coalesced and i think that by, in the 80s probably a lot of it was going on without our knowing it i mean i participated i was uh, a very happy camper um, th- th- this is something's not in the book but it may amuse you that my first use of a computer for communication uh, was with a man who lived across Laurel Canyon for me at the time. His name was Timothy Leary. I know it. I I was a graduate student at Stanford University between 1975 and 80. And I can remember people coming from what was starting to be Silicon Valley. And they were, I mean, they were long haired and they were fooling around with computers even then. But the evil and then when I come back, you know, to use a library, but the evil person was either, you know, IBM or something like that. They were kind of renegade populist, but they weren't like Mark Zuckerberg or the Google fortune or the jobs for it. They weren't these intolerant, huge, multi-billion dollar monopolies and emulating the worst traits of the things that they had earlier criticized. And then I went at Stanford as a graduate student, all my professors were liberal in the PhD program, but they were tolerant and they didn't bring their politics into class. And now being on that campus, I'm kind of influenced. I just walked by not too long ago, the Gaza encampment. That's the longest occupation of the Stanford campus in its history. And it's right between my apartment and my office. But when I look at what that university has become, and it's kind of a for me, I wrote about in the new criterion. It's a metaphor for what the state it's the good. The people like yourself that were reasonable in that generation have left and people came in who were in dire need of subsidies. Uh, half our births are on Medi-Cal now. And then the people who run the state have so much money that there is no middle class and that they're not subject to the ramifications of these green policies or race policies or crime policies. And it's, it's in a doom loop and it's. Well, you know, I have to say, Victor, you have the best training of anybody I know who are trying to understand this because uh, I go back. I never really studied classics in college. I, I, I took, courses in the Greek theater because I was headed for the theater and I learned a lot about Greek theater and I love Greek theater, but, but the history of the Roman empire is probably the most useful. <laughs> it is. It, and it's being so referenced now. 
Yeah. I don't even like to think of, I've been reading the letters of Jerome or Augustine or some Procopius, some of the late Roman Western writers and early Eastern empire. And it is scary because, you know, that everybody quotes that aphorism and you're in a novelist, know it better than anybody from the sun also rises suddenly. I mean, gradually then suddenly. And that's right. kind, of, kind of what decline is. You think you're in it. But you really kind of convince yourself if you're in Rome around 440 or 430 or, well, there's still the aqueducts, there's still the Senate. And then you realize it's all over. And then just suddenly you look around and people are coming across the Tiber, or, excuse me, the uh, the the Rhine River and the Danube. And it's over, complete, kaput. And well, you know, the problem with California is it, I think it became a culture without God. And, you know, it, it, I was enjoying it. I mean, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, everything was fun. And okay, you smoked dope, you tried this, that, and it made a difference. I mean, nothing's going to hurt you, especially if you weren't a substance abuser, really. You know, you could just taste things and, and you could try this and try that. And, you know, and nobody, there were no limits, really. And then we didn't realize... At least I didn't realize the degree that that was treacherous, and I think that I think that was it was all over the place. Because when you look at a guy like Zuckerberg, who thinks of himself as a liberal and doing things for people, and is actually as pernicious as it gets, uh, I think it, it comes sort of out of that. I, yeah, we're going to take a, a brief. Uh... Time out, a commercial from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Roger Simon and his new book on the exodus of people from blue states uh, to red states. And I want to ask some practical questions, if I could, because I think some of people, when they read American Refugees, are going to be interested in as a how-to book. And we'll be right back. And we're back. So, Roger, I'm going to shift radically. And I'm, I'm just going to ask you, when you decided to move, were the mechanics of it, did the state of California keep auditing you as they do some people? Did you have trouble even renting a trailer? Was it was it easy? Was it hard? Does the state uh, of California make it hard? I I was afraid of that. But it it, it didn't really for me. But I think I was had my eyes open and closed all my books to the degree I could and everything before I left. Because, yes, they do have the reputation of, you know, you're here for a year and a half and suddenly get a bill. Yeah. <laughs> you have paid 11% of your income for blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just, uh, so it is something that people should, if they're anticipating doing something like this, be very careful. But uh, let I, me... It, Writing a you you know moving is no I think moving is an arduous task and I'm not planning on doing it again soon. Uh, Let me ask you some questions. So, you had a house in the Los Angeles area, right? Yes, in in the Hollywood Hills, right. Uh, so you sell a house at California prices, and is it true that this magic happens when you sell at California prices? Then you go to a nicer place, but the housing is cheaper and you get a bigger, better house? Yeah? Well, to some extent, but not as radically as you think. 
but it does. It, it is true. It, it depends on where you want. I mean, the 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 whole metropolitan Nashville area is booming, so you know prices are reflected. It's not. It's cheaper, but not that much. I mean, I I do live in a bigger home though, because uh, <laughs> people have more property um, in these places where there's more spaces and. Of course, you have a lot of property, but uh, so I, I used to joke about my house and call it Tara, but it's not quite that. You know, everybody says everybody's leaving California. Why haven't prices go down? And <laughs> it's I think it's because we we've stopped building homes. But uh, so you get to Tennessee and what I mean, what if I were to go to Tennessee, what would I notice right away? Is it? All of a sudden, I don't have to pay 13.3 taxes or was it the taxes that you noticed or the people don't come up to you and say, where's your mask on? Or what? what is it about that you feel more, I guess, the free, uh, free state of Tennessee? Uh, you feel the mask kind of thing much more because taxes, for, you know, they only come up when they come up. Yeah. Uh, but the. Uh, you you feel that you do feel freer and there's no question about that and there's there's less there are fewer hassles but they you know there are the same forces are here trying to do them i mean they're desperate to turn these states blue that that it's like you know it's almost like a scalp and and so you and one of the one of the things you have to do is get involved politically and help stop it yeah, and that you find that a lot of the people who came in from California and New York are doing, and and Chicago, Chicago, a lot of Chicago. Are you you because you don't have a Southern accent, you come under suspicion when people first meet you and they learn that you're a Californian? Uh, no, not that much, not anymore. I mean, uh, if. You know, I play tennis regularly with 10 guys, all of, most of whom are evangelicals, and only one of them has a real Southern accent. So the first few months, I couldn't really understand it, but we were playing tennis and we knew the rules. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it, you don't hear in the big cities now or even the, the suburbs in the, of the big cities that accent so much, or maybe I'm got, become inured to it, but what you do notice is that people are genuinely nicer. They are genuinely nicer. I mean, it's um, a tradition. Do you feel sometimes that when you're when you were in California, I feel it all the time that when you meet people, or you go out to dinner and somebody you don't know, there's just a sense of that you have to be careful what you say, what you do, because you never know this California judgmental stuff. It just jumps out at you. I know. And I'm, I guess I'm hypersensitive because I'm on a campus, but when I, anybody comes into my office where I work, I just assume that one untoward, I'm going to be pounced on. You know what I mean? That sense of dread, just, you don't feel comfortable in California because of the cancel doxing, whatever term we use. It's just, it's so self-righteous. It just becomes smothering. Well, are you in a campus situation here? You, not especially in Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt being sort of the Ivy of the, one of the Ivies of the South with Duke. I think the atmosphere is not as bad as Stanford or Harvard, but not great. Mm -hmm. um, public universities, I, I think you're probably in a better shape. 
um, University of Tennessee and so forth. Incidentally, the University of Tennessee, I write about this in the book, is is uh, uh, is actually trying to aiming to be more middle of the road politically the way universities should be in order to attract students and uh, that normally would go to Yale. And I think they're to some degree having some success with that. So that's an interesting sidebar to this. But, uh, you know, the, the general question of whether you have to shut up it still exists here. I mean, I hear from my daughter who works for NASDAQ here, but she works at home, but she has all kinds of business contacts that a 25-year-old might have. I mean, in my case, you know, everybody already, I'm out, like you're out. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody who walks into the office of Victor Davis Hanson pretty much knows who he is. People uh, coming up to me often know I write for the Epoch Times, you know, so it's not... You know, then what's to hide at that point? If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But 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 she is a, a young lady in the business world, and she I know she has told me that she's very careful at times, and uh, when she knows she's in a certain atmosphere, and so it's not it's not as I said, it's not Nirvana in Tennessee, or for that. Or I would be surprised to say, and I've been in Florida quite a bit lately, that, that it's not always Nirvana in, in Florida. So it, it's better. It's definitely it's, better. And in certain new neighborhoods, you don't worry. I think everybody should um, take counsel because so many people that are listening, we have a big California uh, audience about what it's very eerie. And I don't think anybody has described it as well as Roger. I I've in the last 15 months, I've been to Idaho. I've been to Tennessee. I've been to Florida, Arizona, Nevada. And I met Californians. But the, I guess the flip side of the bookend is I, I live on a rural street and I can remember 1960, 1970, all the way to the middle 70s. There was this diverse group of family farmers. There were the Fanukis, Italian. There were the Israelis, Armenian. There were the Lopez's, Mexican-American. There were the Ciotas that were Indian from Sikhs. But they were all the same. They were all small farmers. They were all very conservative. Nobody locked their door. And now and their kids all went to the public schools. Everybody would talk to each other. They're completely wiped out. It's all corporate. They've all fled to different states because land was pretty valuable. They sold out. And when I drive down the same streets, it's like going through Bodhi or a ghost town. It's a corporate. The the small farms have been conglomerated into absentee corporate almonds, usually. And then the farms are farmhouses are that I used to go and, you know, stay overnight with my friends or talk to their parents. They're all they're all rented out to mostly people who are here from south of the border illegally. And so all of a sudden, the flip side of when I see the boom and the excitement and the youth of what's going on in Tennessee or Florida, then I see the other side where we have one house on our street where there's M13s. We have another where there was a chop shop. We have another 
where I won't even get into it, but there was prostitution, etc. I used to ride my bike. I had to stop because of unlicensed dogs biting me. And then what do you do with rabies shots and stuff? So it's it's civilization in reverse, and yet it's partly responsible for creating a new civilization. If you know what I mean, it's it's schizophrenic almost to see you know, to be so excited about America when you go out of California and be so depressed about what California is accelerating to the descending into. Well, you know, I have that feeling too when I go to New York, which I do more often than California now because I go to the Epoch Times office. And I, 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 I grew up in New York, you know, in the 50s. And I remember, you know, playing stickball in the streets like you know, Willie Mays and all that stuff. And, and with kids of all races and nobody cared. Nobody cared. Now, I'm trying to remember whether this is like some fantasy that I, um, you know, project back of my youth the way people do as they get older. But I don't think it's completely that. Because I can remember my friends and I just, you know, we could go up to Yankee Stadium for a night game when we were 11 years old by ourselves on the subway, uh, come back at 1030 at night, and our parents would say, hi, how was the game? It, it is. And uh, I have one when you went to Tennessee, did you look at other cities like Knoxville or areas around uh, Tennessee? Actually, we looked at not Tennessee. We looked at Charleston. You did. In South Carolina. Yeah. Yes. And, and uh, I sort of wanted Charleston because I, I loved and I wondered if my California real estate could help me afford it. I loved those old buildings in Charleston that they have down by the water. Yes. I wanted something, you know, 1870, so who knows, right? Anyway, I uh, uh, but I got outvoted by my wife and daughter. I like I like Nashville too. So, <laughs> but uh, two weeks after we moved, there was a hurricane, and all those buildings had two feet of water in their living room. So I figured uh, God was looking out for me. It's but, um, you know, one of the things I think people deal with that are not an American refugee yet is they kind of have, I think I used the term once called a monastery of the mind. They just, they don't turn on the Oscars. They don't know who they could care less about the Emmy awards. They don't know anything about the Grammys. They haven't, if you told them who won the NBA championship, they'd have no idea. If you'd say, when's the last time you saw a movie? And actually, I know that it's, you know, it's downloaded on Netflix and all that. But if you actually went to a theater, they don't go. If you said, do you follow the movie stars? You know who the no, they don't know. They've just they've just dropped out of American popular culture or American institutions because they feel that they're unrecognizable. You know what I mean by that? So even though they haven't moved out of California, psychologically or mentally, they're not in California. I don't blame them. Yeah, there, it's an alternate reality that we were created. Do you think, I mean, because we're getting out of time, what do you think the ultimate trajectory is of this this mass exodus, the, these refugees and this new, these new red states politically? Do you think that we, that what's happening is going to be the majority culture or is it 
I mean, it's going to it seems to me that they're not reconcilable. The Joe Biden, what we're seeing with Joe Biden and the Obama, that type of agenda is not reconcilable. And what happens? Who's going to win or which where's the country? It seems that the majority of people, I think, are more red state than blue. Don't you? I actually do. And uh, that's why I get it when I get up in the morning now, I'm. Unbalanced, optimistic. If it's not a particular your book is very. I thought I found your book very optimistic. Yeah, well, like, you know, that's partly my personality. I mean, uh, I made a decision for optimism. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, but I think it's in my DNA. I and I thank God for that because I think optimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy, and pessimism certainly is. So I think I think. Our country was the greatest experiment in history that I know of, and I think it's certainly worth fighting for. And that's why partly why we made the move, so I could be part of the fight. You know, I was always sort of part of the fight, but I was part of the fight on the wrong side, I think. So I I got to uh, be on the right side, and I still feel that way. And yeah, there are problems all the time, but otherwise it wouldn't be a fight. Let me just finish by asking one last question, if I could, because I think it's really important to um, your book and what you've what you're describing and, and conveying. And that is why why is it so you take a why do people when they look at what's happening in Chicago and or what's happening in New York or what's happening in California or what's happening in downtown Seattle or Portland? And they know it doesn't work. They know the border's not working. They know that critical legal theory and letting people out with serious felonies the day there is not working. They know that the green solar wind is not going to save us. And it's the prices. They look at California's cost of living. They look at the foreign policy, what we're doing abroad and the flight from Afghanistan or the Chinese. What is the earth? Why do they keep doing it when they know it doesn't work is what I'm saying. Is it just the utopian impulse or that they insulate themselves from the fallout of what they they're promoting for other people? But I ask this because you say you're there in Nashville and you're in this place that you you see clearly did something antithetical to California and therefore it's civilizational, but there's people inside Tennessee. One of the reasons you went is to stop the Californization of Tennessee. Why would they keep doing it when you can see where it leads? Why do you think that is? Well, give it a simple answer is a bad habit like smoking, but the, but the, the, I think a lot of stuff, when I look at California and I and, and I look at people I know, friends, family, co-workers from Hollywood, all that kind of stuff. I I see a lot of fear and uh, fear of change because their, their peers will hate them. They'll lose family. They'll, they'll lose jobs, most of all. And all of those things. And fear is it governs a lot of people. And, um, you know, I think it also explains the 30s in Berlin. I mean... <laughs> You know, there are an awful lot of people who just avert their eyes because it's just too much trouble. And maybe that's the way the human race, I guess it's a lot of the human race. It's I, almost I, a progressive addiction, do you think? It's generation. a tremendous progressive addiction. I think that, but, I, but I think that addiction 
is built a lot around fear. I mean, because if you if you go off the reservation for a moment, you get you, all of a sudden your phone doesn't ring. Hmm. Or you don't get a text message. Yes. <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're alone. Well, I, I know that the, you asked earlier, you know, what it was, you know, about then you have to build up a whole new set of friends. You know, you're a, to me, you're a new friend, even though we've been friends for 20 years. What I mean is I, I, know, I never yeah. would have known Victor Davis Hanson if I hadn't changed my politics. Well, I just talked to a Ph.D. Uh, candidate who's very conservative, was asking me to what degree he could be transparent or candid. I said, if you your thesis, which should be disinterested, but if it does betray some traditionalism or it doesn't embrace cultural theory or Marxism, critical theory, I should say, and if you read certain things and if it gets around that you are not right wing, but not even conservative, but moderately but you're not left. You're not going to get a job, especially because you're a white male. You're just not going to do it. And you're going to have to think about why you got your Ph.D. But then if you compromise and you say that you're not what you are and you get the job, then you're going to be unhappy unless you would. And it's going to be. I, so I basically said to them, you're in a profession that requires you to emulate the behavior of people in the late Soviet Union or the Warsaw Pact. You've got to go through the rote protocols and customs, but you're and you don't believe in any of it. Otherwise, you're going to be excised from the party. And that's kind of what conservatives or people in blue states do now, I think, to survive. If they're going to be in any of the institutions that are controlled by the left, most of which you've spent your life in writing, screenplays, reporting, journalism, academia, et cetera. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I would have, you know, I, I couldn't not be honest. That's why I changed my politics. I mean, I couldn't be, I couldn't be a writer anymore. I know. I, you know, interestingly, I had a story that was, uh, might be interesting to your listeners. In 97, I made a movie in Prague and, and the, uh, and my AD, which is a very important job, a woman, uh, a, a beautiful Czech woman of a certain age who had been years before the lead commentator on their television shows, uh, the nightly news. But she was by she was totally anti-communist. But in those days, she had to be a communist. So she would be drug. She would drug herself to get on the news every night. Uh, because she because she actually saw the news um, wires coming in that said what was actually happening, and she was told she had to lie about it. It was fascinating to talk to her about this because then I started to realize so many people in our culture are basically that way. Anyway, this is a fascinating book, everyone. American Refugees, it's out. January 9th today, it's from Encounter Books. The author has been speaking with us for the last hour, Roger L. Simon. And if you've ever thought about the people coming into your state, or you've ever thought of leaving your state, or you're ever in a state where people have left, uh, this is the book for you. It's endorsed by Vivek Ramaswamy, by Tucker Carlson. It's, it's really a great book, and I think you're going to love it. And Roger, thank you for spending an hour with us on the Victor Davis Hanson Show. 
Tremendous pleasure, Victor. I talk to you again soon. Thank you.